Well, you know what that little theme song means. It's time for one of our favorite segments of every program, or almost every program, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. In the original version, by the way, it was Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and former Radio Parallax guest, Eli Wallach. Anyway, we would note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week this past week for astronauts, and we'd have to add cosmonauts as well, with the news that both Russian-made toilets on the International Space Station are now working again. The ISS's commander, Luca Parmitano, had warned that space residents were mere hours from having to wear space diapers. And our take on that on this program is that the less we know about space diapers, the better. I, for one, am glad to be influenced by the gravitational field of Mother Earth. And unlike people on the International Space Station, I can be grateful for that every time I have to answer the call of nature. It was, on the other hand, a bad week, and this is, this is, really, this is really sad. It was a bad week for apostrophes, with the news that John Richards, who was the founder of the Apostrophe Protection Society, which exists over in the United Kingdom, has declared defeat in his efforts to promote the correct use of apostrophes and reduced errors such as pizza apostrophe S. Said Richards, age 96, ignorance has won. It should be noted, for the record, that whatever you may want to say about the McDonald's Corporation, they did get the apostrophe right, which is more, I think, than can be said about the Big Mac. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for, well, I'm not sure whether it's trends or whether it's trending, take your pick. Hollywood has a new wellness trend that's trending, which is perineum sunning. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term, the perineum, medically and anatomically, refers to that delicate area between the anus and the genitals. There's apparently a theory in Hollywood at present that this area more effectively converts sunlight into energy and vitamin D than other areas. Actress Shailene Woodley, whoever she might be, is quoted as advising her fans to, quote, spread your legs and get some sunshine, unquote. Meanwhile, mystical Megan, described as a California-based influencer, says that the feeling of sunlight on the perineum is, quote, more energizing than slamming cups of coffee, end quote. <laughs> to which we say, attention, Starbucks. note in adding to that that uh, Mr. Marillon has strived for years to become an influencer. But I think it's had to settle for being an under-the-influencer. Anyway, I guess influencers are quite a big thing in the world of commerce, especially in Hollywood. According to the New York Times, the streaming platform Quibi is banking on influencers. 
Quibi is being described as a short-form video app scheduled for an April debut. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, the founders, are trying to create a platform for the smartphone age. And to entice subscribers, they've ordered big-budget shows from known quantities like Kevin Hart and Steven Spielberg. But they've turned to social media stars for the kind of casual, low-commitment programming that could make QB a daily habit. The article goes on. Sean Boudram, a 34-year-old sex educator with 506,000 YouTube subscribers and 260,000 Instagram followers, will host Sexology with Sean five days a week. And another social media influencer who has signed a deal with QB, Rachel Hollis, has 1.6 million Instagram followers and will be the host of the, oddly enough, Rachel Hollis Show, a daily show of bite-sized bits of motivation for young mothers. And now, I don't know what they mean by short-form video app. Does that mean you get like 60 seconds of these folks? I I don't know. Yeah, influencers. There was a show on one of these... uh, crime programs I happened to catch uh, several days ago I was talking about the fire festival which we, we talked about before this one was a different program than the one I had I'd seen previously and in a horrifying sort of way it's 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 somewhat enjoyable to watch as I think uh, I forget the name Brian Burroughs I think it is from Vanity Fair magazine was describing how he'd been on this story all along and how amazed he was at the fact that even as the day of the festival was arriving, and they knew there was zero possibility they could pull this thing together. The scam master behind the whole thing just, you know, was untroubled by it all and thought, somehow it's all going to work. The people he had working for him to this day appear to be just mortified and sort of shocked at uh, how it was they capitulated to his crazy demands. One of the webmasters, I guess, was urged to put more ads out there about the luxury villas they were going to to sell to the festival attendees that didn't exist. And I guess the guy just went ahead and did it, feeling bad about it, but he did it. To my mind, it reminded me a lot of the Republicans that (laughs) to back up Donald Trump in spite of the crazy things he says and does. But yeah, in this fire festival, they apparently paid uh, Kylie Jenner some huge sum of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe a million dollars, I forget, some huge sum to promote the thing and, you know, tell her her followers. Of course, if you're a follower of Kylie Jenner, I think you deserve whatever happens to you. Nevertheless, these poor saps were convinced this is going to be a really, really majorly epically cool thing when it, in fact, turned out to be more like the Lord of the Flies. There's something sort of horrifying yet entertaining about, you know, watching a bunch of pampered, rich, elite kids storming the refugee tents they set up in lieu of luxury villas and just robbing mattresses from one another. I'm just glad no one had access to machetes because it probably would have been a bloodbath. Well, anyway, when it comes to uh, conning a gullible public, I'm holding an example in my left hand at the moment. This is one of the brochures I took home from the conference I attended down in Carlsbad many months ago. I went to a proper medical conference. Well, they talked about medical topics and, and stayed you know, pretty reality-based, I think it's fair to say. Down the hall, they were having another conference. This was uh, a nutritional and detoxification support program. 
Here's what one of their brochures says. Every day, millions of molecules from different compounds enter our bodies through voluntary ingestion or involuntary exposure. These chemicals come from foods, beverages, medicines, food additives, personal care products, and numerous other sources. While the human body has excellent built-in mechanisms to cleanse itself of these pollutants, it is unable to completely eliminate them. As a result, the body slowly accumulates pollutants until it is affected by them. Well, that's not totally unreasonable. Anyway, the brochure contains some dietary advice, or at least a dietary regimen they're going to put you on. I note that it does include fresh water, 8 to 10 glasses a day, which, you know, ain't going to kill you. Although medical science has pointed out this this, this notion, which, which you hear all the time, that you have to have like eight, eight glasses of water a day, is not true. If you're doing a 100-mile century bike run down in Tempe, Arizona, you're probably going to need a lot more than that. If you're sitting around your house on a cold winter day, well, you're, you're probably not going to need that much. Anyway, red flag for me always comes when you see a big, long explanation from people of this sort, after which a disclaimer follows an asterisk which notes that this statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, great. This might be a good time to note something we've never noted before in this program, which is that Radio Parallax, in fact, is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Is stupidity a disease? I would say that it is not. And when it comes to stupidity, we are, in fact, trying to prevent, diagnose, treat, and, whenever possible, cure it. And speaking of medicine and how medicine can interface with health education in the media, and how's that for a segue? We note with some sadness the passing of someone who managed to bridge that sort of gap. That's not the way to describe it. Let's see. How would you describe what Jonathan Miller did? He was, in fact, a medical doctor, and he was also kind of over in the UK, a bit of a cultural phenomenon. He passed away on November 27th at age 85. To quote from his obituary, which appeared in The Economist, Whenever he erupted onto a set or into a studio, Jonathan Miller made an instant impression. Part came from his height and gawkiness, the tweed jacket, the excessively angular elbows and knees. But he also drew attention because, as often as not, he had a book of neuroscience in his hand. The point he was making was this. Science was hard and needed constant application. But the sort of thing he spent five decades doing, putting on plays, making television documentaries, directing more than 50 operas, he could achieve with his left hand behind his back. Art was easy, ridiculously so. Most television was utter banality, most opera forgettable, vulgar and sentimental. So, it took very little originality to make them memorable. For the BBC in 1966, for example, he turned Alice in Wonderland, which had been horribly disnified, into a Victorian child's dream. In 1982, he set Verdi's Rigoletto in Little Italy in New York, with mobsters swaggering. And La Donna Immobile kicked out of a jukebox. His film of The Symposium, called The Drinking Party, put actors into dinner jackets as old boys at a school reunion, reading Plato's Discourse on Love. 
noted The Economist, all these were great successes, cementing his reputation as the most brilliant mind on the British cultural scene. And yet, even then, he agonized over why he was doing this. He'd meant to be a doctor, specifically a neurologist. Instead, probably out of weak-mindedness, he always said yes whenever anyone turned up at his door and asked if he would like to play. The first of these accidents happened when he was lured away from his medical training by three Cambridge friends, Alan Bennett, Peter Cook, and Dudley Moore. They wanted him to write and perform in Beyond the Fringe in 1960, a review which pilloried everything the English held dear, from the Battle of Britain to tea to Shakespeare. Noted the magazine, after this electrified both London and New York, it was hard to go back to hospital work. The Economist served up the opinion that he he should have stayed intentionally with medicine because, they said, originality in medicine could bring lasting benefit. And because in science one was either right or wrong and one's work was peer-reviewed by people who at least knew the topic. Instead, Jonathan Miller had to put up with critics, sniveling pipsqueaks who knew 100% less than he did about the piece in question, but whined that he was messing it around. When they called him a polymath, a term that he loathed, they really meant he was jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. As some consolation, he could bring his medical expertise to bear on art, for the BBC produced a television series, The Body in Question, in which, among a fireworks display of observations, he compared red blood cells clotting to Duchamp's nude descending a staircase, while the movement of cilia on cells was compared to Van Gogh's Wheatfield with Lark. His radio series on Madness featured the voices of both experts and those being treated. I remember seeing some episodes of The Body in Question many years ago on public television, and uh, I was impressed. Any guy that could produce a solid documentary on the human body (laughs) and also work with the likes of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore is a guy we just have to take our hat off to. And by the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar with those names, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, and there probably are a few of you, we say check out their work. Their movie, The Wrong Box, is pretty good. Their collaboration in the original Bedazzled is at times pretty dazzling. And uh, some of their comedy sketches, classic. Foremost among them, in my opinion, the bit entitled One Leg Too Few. Unfortunately, there are many versions of this uh, available on the internet, some a lot better than others. We like it so much, we may may try to do a, a version of it here on this program. Anyway, after a short hiatus, we are now again receiving New Scientist magazine. And who can resist a headline like this, which appeared in the magazine's pages? Hayabusa 2 says, Sayonara to Ryugu. Easy for me to say, I know you're thinking. But the story is that Hayabusa 2, which is a Japanese spacecraft, has begun its return journey to Earth from the asteroid Ryugu. It went out and visited Ryugu, orbited a few times, and uh, managed to obtain some samples of the asteroid, which it is now bringing back to Earth for analysis. Well, I do have to add that as much as I do like the magazine, they do need to get a new TV columnist. They've no sooner hired a woman named Chelsea White, based in Portland, Oregon, than she opens up a column talking about Silicon Valley. The HBO TV series, I mean. This so-called TV columnist admits to skipping over the first five seasons of the show and just watching the final season. Because, my God, what work it would have been to sit through 
five seasons of hilarity. Here's how she closed the piece. I am sure I'm missing quite a bit without the full backstory on these characters, but the emotional moments of old friends reconciling after a fight or coming through in a pinch are the best parts of the show. They had me cheering the dolts on, even if I don't know them very well. Calls to mind the Woody Allen speed reading course in conjunction with this columnist. Woody, of course, noted that he did take a speed reading course after which he read War and Peace in 15 minutes, adding, it's about Russia. Here's another one of Chelsea White's insights. While the details in Silicon Valley can seem outlandish, it turns out that some are based on reality. Yeah, speaking of dolts. Anyway, I'd have to say that (laughs) this columnist reminds me of Huck's lines to Jim in Huckleberry Finn when, after Jim explains that that King Solomon weren't no wise man neither, asking, do you know that story about that child he was going to chop in two? Adding that the man that thinks he can settle dispute about a whole child with a half a child don't got sense enough to come in out of the rain. To which Huck adds... Oh, but hang it, Jim, you missed the point. You missed it clean. The part that she liked about that first episode in this final season, which we commented on uh, on on this very program when it happened, was a rather brilliant skewering of Mark Zuckerberg's appearance before Congress. This is what tickled the columnist. The CEO of Pied Piper, Richard Hendricks, is walking into a hearing at Congress. An aide tells him she likes his tie, and he responds, Thanks. I tied it myself. Said the columnist, I snorted and then rolled my eyes at the all too real depiction of someone completely out of their depth. I think this guy's going to have to find a way to, you know, go down to Hollywood and, and get some of those people that throw t shirts to the audience to get them to laugh. Anyway, maybe she'll get better. Here's a feature of the magazine we like considerably better. It was an interview with Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard, interviewed by Graham Lawton. The article notes that uh, the professor is best known for exposing the tactics of science deniers. Her first book, Merchants of Doubt, co-authored with Eric Conway, chronicled how industry-funded scientists spread misinformation and doubt about tobacco smoke, climate change, acid rain, and more. She has since exposed how the tobacco playbook has become the standard corporate strategy to delay regulatory action and protest bottom lines. In her new book, Why Trust Science, she sets out what scientists must do to stem the tide of denialism. Asked if she'd ever known science denial and misinformation to be so rampant and widespread, Naomi Oreski said, I don't like to overstate the situation because we've had denial for a long time. However, two things have happened to make things worse. One is the blatant, overt, unapologetic, and completely shameless rejection of science by the President of the United States. The other is that people's lives are really at stake. Climate change is here. It's unequivocal. People are being killed by floods and hurricanes. To deny it in the face of human suffering, there's a moral dimension to that. I can't think of a word other than shocking. Well, we've talked about this very thing on this program. The corporate weasels, the one to continue to make money from whatever misdeeds uh, they're profiting from, have decided to just do a frontal assault on science. I remember an idiot who I went out on one date with. I 
showed her a human artifact that I have, something from Olduvai Gorge, which I'm happy to say Professor Henry McHenry, Professor of Anthropology at UC Davis, dated for me at 1.8 million years of age and noted that this curiously shaped piece of rock, shaped by the hands of Homo erectus, by the way, was 1.8 million years old. And she replied, if you believe all that radon dating, and I guess I should clarify at this point that, that no, actually, I don't believe in radon dating. However, I, I do accept the dates that are derived from radioactive isotopes. Potassium argon, carbon-14, yeah, pretty solid science there. But back to the interview. The professor was asked about how it seems we've gone from science denial to denial of facts and evidence in general. Something we're just talking about. Would you agree with that? She said, yes. What we're seeing is the manufactured doubt strategy being universalized as a political tactic because once you can undermine people's belief in facts and credible authority, then you can say almost anything. Normally in politics, one of the tools that we use to fight back against things we don't agree with is to point out when they're factually incorrect. Now, because there's so much cynicism and distrust, that's become extremely difficult. We would call to mind Anderson Cooper versus Kellyanne Conway, who was being called out over Trump's claim that his inaugural had been the most widely attended of any in history, and was pointed out that the photographs, which in this case counts as the facts in the matter, show otherwise. Kellyanne Conway responded with the rebuttal that she was using alternative facts. Asked, what can scientists do to counter public doubt? Professor said, when the doubt thing first happened, most scientists misdiagnosed it. They saw it as a problem of scientific literacy and thought the response was to explain it more clearly. More facts, more evidence. That doesn't work because these people are not lacking information. This is not a knowledge deficit problem. It is a problem of ideologically motivated misinformation. What you have to do is expose their motivation. And then you can say, look, I get it. I care about freedom too. So let's talk about solutions to this problem that we could achieve without taking away your freedom. Then you shifted the terms of the debate. Asked, you and others have been banging this drum for years. Do you feel you failed? She responded, I don't think so. We've made people aware that this is not simply a problem of scientific literacy. However, we're up against really, really big forces. There's an incredibly powerful and well-funded network organized and financed by some of the most powerful corporations that have ever existed. And to return briefly to Silicon Valley, although in this case, the geographical area, not the TV show, I would note with tremendous disappointment that I thought for many years that from the power that big tech could potentially loose on the world to A, bring people together, and B, get them better informed, I'm now horrified to note that what big tech instead has created social media that are isolating, making it possible for people to exclude ideas they're, they're just not happy with and focus on constantly reinforcing their own opinions, good, bad, and otherwise, good, bad, and other. And as a consequence, people are not only not being brought together, they are not getting any wiser either. I think we'll close with yet another column in the magazine, in this case by Claire Wilson. It was titled, Science's Fake News Problem, and it's worth a word or two. Claire Wilson notes that the problem in science isn't just that some findings turn out to be wrong. 
It is, after all, the point of science to be constantly questioning, testing, and refining hypotheses. But after she attended a meeting of the British Neuroscience Association, the BNA, she notes they're launching a fight back against bad science, in this case starting with well-meaning efforts by managers and funders to judge researchers' productivity. This is done by gauging how many papers they write and the prestige of the journals that publish them, and they quantify them by their impact factor, an average of how often the papers they publish are cited by other papers. And of course, you know, Modern technology makes this pretty easy. She notes that these publication records of researchers increasingly govern every aspect of their success, including pay raises, future jobs, and funding for new products. In this publish-or-perish culture, it is in their interest to produce a blizzard of papers that are groundbreaking and flashy so as to get published in high-impact journals. Journals are incentivized to publish such papers rather than ones that, for example, describe attempts to replicate others' work. The resulting system is the antithesis of how good science should be done. She stresses the importance in science of how we need to replicate findings that come out that seem very dramatic and see if they're true, if they hold up. She notes that in a psychiatry review published this year called into question two decades of work on the link between depression and a gene affecting the brain chemical serotonin. It wasn't just that people said it mattered, and it didn't. It's that we built whole castles in the air on it mattering, said psychologist Dorothy Bishop at the University of Oxford. Anyway, there's an effort over there in the UK to uh, not use journal impact factors in decisions on funding and job appointments, and that's a good thing. And some good news from the world of biodiversity. We reported on this program ad nauseum about the danger humanity faces from uh, the corporatization of seeds and, so, and how certain high-yield strains that make a lot of money for certain corporations are pushing out from cultivation traditional seeds that have been passed down as heirlooms over the years. Well, there's currently a massive effort underway to use wild plants to breed new crop varieties with traits such as resistance to droughts or disease. So they're trying to find the wild relatives of many of our crop plants, which will have these useful genes contained within them. The examples they cite are a type of wild carrots that grow in salty water, an oat relative resistant to powdery mildew, and a kind of bean that tolerates high temperatures and drought. This is a race against time. In Ethiopia, samples from multiple species were taken from a region that's soon going to be flooded by a dam. In Chile... They found only one site where a wild barley was still growing after a massive fire devastated its habitat. This is a worthy endeavor. We wish scientists the best in these collections. And looks like we've collected our full complement of time available for this program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. My name, Bond, James Bond. plan to have a thing or two to say about him on next week's show.